1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host, and I'm here in the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark, our studios, which are sweltering hot in the middle of the summertime here. And with me, also sweltering, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, David Sanger of the New York Times, and author of The Perfect Weapon, uh, now available at fine bookstores and online outlets. Uh, all across America. Also, David sells them from the back of his car as he drives across the country <laughs> on his book tour. Um, and in beautiful Aspen, Colorado, among the rich, the elite, uh, where she should be at the Aspen Ideas <laughs> Festival, dispensing ideas, Corey Shaki. Um. Uh, OK, guys, uh, we discussed in the last episode uh, David's book, and I want to pick up with that and then move on to a couple of other things. But one of the things that I, we didn't get to in this book is what next? What is the other shoe to drop? What is the thing that will take us from where we are in the current cyber landscape to the next level? David. Well, the, the subtitle of the book is War,
2: Sabotage and Fear. In the cyber oh, yeah, I age. see that. You see it's that? It's kind
1: of subtly there in the back in the yeah, cover. Yeah, there
2: you go. And so let's pick apart those. On the war side, what's happened with cyber is it has become incorporated with every war plan that the United States and its adversaries
1: make. So, so you could have called this book – when cyber becomes everything and, and everything, everything becomes <laughs> cyber, yeah, I was going to do that, but I was fearing a lawsuit.
3: <laughs> That's going to be my next book. <laughs> okay. So,
2: um, so. The book tells the story of Nitro Zeus, which was the code name for. You wonder who makes this stuff. That up, was right? my
1: nickname in high school. That's why I reacted <laughs> <to> that way. <laughs> <one.
3: laughs> it was one of the things that always sort of fascinated me at the when I was at the Pentagon. Was that the code names always sounded so cool, and yet they claimed they were randomly generated yeah. words? And yeah. I always thought, yeah. well, how come they never yeah, random sure. randomly generated like, like rancid Olympic, avocado" Olymp- or anything?
2: Olympic games, yeah. Right, right, yeah, right? Right? They're not. <laughs> There's a little room full of guys no way. with.
3: Resolve
1: was randomly. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm I'm, frankly, I'm going to take your example here. Until there (laughs) is Operation Rancid Avocado, I won't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: Nitro Zeus was a plan to basically unplug all of Iran if we got into a conflict with Iran. Now, we averted that by signing the 2015 nuclear deal. Oh, what, what a relief. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you glad that <laughs> out of the way? Okay, And the plan was overseen. Uh, at least the cyber part of it by uh, an army general who was at the time running the new cyber mission forces. This is the 6,000 American troops, now 6,000 strong, who just deal in cyber. But they spread themselves out among the military units. And uh, his name is General Paul Nakasone. And he just became the head of the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command. So, if there is a dusting off of Nitro Zeus to do, he knows where they've kept the copies of it. okay, But what's that tell you about the future? It tells you that future wars may well start with a cyber strike that is intended to keep you from ever having to fire an actual kinetic weapon. The sabotage part of that of the uh, subtitle. The sabotage part wow, is— Wow, Jesus,
1: we're just one word into in your subtitle. Right. So war, war <laughs> no, right. in— You should s- write a whole book. I should write a whole <laughs>
2: book, yeah. So the sabotage part is partly about things like Olympic Games, what we did to the centrifuges, and partly about what we did to the uh, North Korean uh, missile program, but also about the sabotage of our systems. And the fear element is that as soon as you don't trust your own computer systems— you don't trust much of what binds society together. So if David won't get into his new fancy autonomous Porsche,
1: right? <laughs> because he's afraid. Look, wait a second. What is the point of an autonomous (laughs) Porsche? It's like, oh, this is a great driving machine. I will sit here on a couch. And not drive. And not drive. (laughs) So, you know, if
2: you think that instead of taking you to the supermarket, it's going to drive you off of a cliff, you're not going to use your car. If you think your election – when you think when you go to cast your ballot that maybe the machine isn't going to record the vote the way you intended – you're going to begin to undercut the uh, the the thought that democracy
1: actually works. Wait a minute. Rosa, what if you did it so you didn't believe the news media?
3: Yes, indeed. So so and but but actually I think I think this is this goes to David's point, right? Cyber is never just cyber. It's generally part of a broader plan uh that may include other forms of what you could call information warfare. Uh, to 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 accomplish the same end, which is reduce the credibility of legitimate information sources, you know, cause conf- so confusion, so mistrust, and you can do that enough. I think we're, we're we're seeing it happen in this country right now. Obviously, you can do that enough that it can make it very very hard for people to mobilize uh, in an effective way, and it can make it very very hard for legitimate government activity to have an impact.
1: An excellent an excellent point. Um, Corey, let me ask you a question. You're out there, you know, at the Aspen Ideas Festival talking about all of these things. What do you think the level of awareness of the urgency of these issues is? And if it is not high as it ought to be, besides David's book, what, you know, what can we do about them?
0: That's a great question, David. So, uh, no, it's not nearly as high as it ought to be. And, um, partly because we're in the midst of the revolution, right, like this is the equivalent of getting the Pony Express to go across Indian country and pretty soon we're gonna have railroads and then we're gonna have airplanes. So so the good news is that um, this is a fast-moving uh, subject. The technology is moving fast, that knowledge base on creation of cyber weapons is moving fast, but also the public awareness is moving pretty fast. And it's not fast enough, but but actually helping people understand that there are certain things you should and shouldn't do, uh, helping develop a moral universe that guides our choices um, as these things become increasingly automated and algorithmic rather than individual choice. I mean, our military is now talking about being on the loop, not in the loop for decisions that machines will make on our behalf. So so this is moving really fast. The good news is that societies in which individuals have an enormous amount of autonomy are the societies likeliest to to find our way through these problems to successful conclusions that we're willing to live with the consequences of. The biggest worry isn't so much, wow, can we figure out how to navigate uh, a cyber world where Alexa is reporting on us, Uh, but is, will we have time to make adaptations? And are we acknowledging that we as liberal societies are going to bind ourselves by rules that our adversaries may very well not? I'd love to hear David Sanger's um, thinking on the asymmetric nature of a rule setting.
1: Well, I'd, let me. I, I want to sort of break that question into two parts because I thought it was a really thought provoking. We tend to think of things related to tech evolving along a trajectory in which they are driven by like minded actors. Like you know, we invented the internet, and the internet is going to develop along our lines, uh, and we're the internet. Great power in the world, and we are going to be able to drive the standards. And yet, it seems to be happening. Wait, that's
0: David Sanger. He's trolling me from our TV conversation this morning.
1: Oh, I didn't hear your TV conversation this morning. Um, but but he's but, trolling you generally. <laughs> but, <laughs> I would never. I would never do that. But but yet, for example, the Chinese are taking lead on a number of these things, and they don't have anywhere remotely like the same intent we do to use these new technologies. No,
2: in fact they've got the right. they they're going to use the technologies but for completely different purposes. So um there's a section of the book that deals with China where I start off with going to China with Bill Clinton at the second half of his presidency and he would go to um the University of uh Beijing University Beida and give these great speeches where they, he would basically say The internet will undercut the Communist Party uh, of China. And the United States is going to help this by spreading internet
1: technology around the world. There was a guy in the back of the room with a notepad going, make sure that does not happen. uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) There were a lot of people in the room making sure
2: that didn't happen. And they were very careful about not broadcasting his his speeches very widely. So one of the questions I asked in the book is, so what happened? to this great image. And it wasn't just Bill Clinton. I mean, George Bush signed on to this and others, which was basically the communications, the internet will make you free. And the high watermark of this argument was the Arab Spring, right? It was the moment where we saw kids out in the square in Egypt and they're you know, using Facebook and Twitter and everything to get organized and all that. Meanwhile, the Chinese were working away on this and saying, you know, we can have it both ways. We can have the most wired, the most communicative society, and we can use it to make sure that anybody who isn't getting the memo to stick with the system, we deal with. And they've essentially been brilliant at doing this. And now CC is doing it pretty well in Egypt and lots of other places are doing it. Because if you are a repressive leader, there's nothing more valuable than not only knowing who your dissidents are, but who their friends are. Well, you
1: know. With the, I'm, I'm going to try to frame this carefully here. Um, but once upon a time, I was familiar with a situation of a major American company that wanted to break into the Chinese market. And they sought to meet with Chinese leadership and to offer them a back door into the internet or a way to control the internet in exchange for market share. In other words, this is one of these bastion American companies that you would think about and you'd go, one of our you know, leading lights in technology. And they were willing to go to the Chinese and say, hey, we'll cut a deal. You give us, a, you know, you give us some market share, we'll let you manage your internet any way you want. I um, think our
0: salvation may be. That it's the Chinese not keeping up their end of the bargain. I I grant you that uh, plenty of American companies are willing to do all sorts of reprehensible things in order to get access to the Chinese market. But just as Voltaire prayed for God to make his enemies ridiculous, and he believed in God because his enemies were ridiculous— we need the Chinese to be every bit as invidious as we think they are, and the Chinese government's proving that true. And so American businesses are are rethinking whether access to the Chinese market, if they even get it, is worth having their technology stolen and families hassled and that kind of stuff.
1: Well, okay. That's an excellent Voltaire analogy to pick up on here, Rosa, and 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 the, because Voltaire said, let's pray for my enemies to be ridiculous. And what, what happened? We all prayed for our enemies to be ridiculous. And our and prayers we were an, granted. They were granted, and we now have enemies that are ridiculous. And they're succeeding in spite of their ridiculousness, possibly because of their ridiculousness, and all of a sudden, ridiculousness becomes an asset. Now, this may seem a little convoluted, but where I'm going with this is that at the end of the Cold War, there was a lot of talk about how Russia collapsed because they were a closed society. And to operate in the global economy, you needed to be an open society. And so fax machines and and the internet were helping to bring down, the incipient internet, were helping to bring down the, the closed Soviet Union. Now, here we are at another point where things have changed a bit. And it sort of seems possible that all these information technologies could actually empower countries who are willing to use them to control their societies in a way that would put open societies at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we may be getting to Chapter 2, and it may be a lot bleaker than Chapter 1 in this story of the interrelationship between the information revolution and – you know geopolitics
3: yeah i think it's it's actually an even more complicated story because in this country we we have had a lot more public wariness of government use of the internet for surveillance purposes than we have had of private companies using the internet uh, for all sorts of nefarious purposes. And and thus, we have a, a population that it turns out has been perfectly willing to uh, tolerate having Facebook and Google and everybody else in the world um, collect all kinds of private information about them, sell it to anybody. And it turns out that some of the people they end up selling it to are are adversarial states. Um, And we don't mind at all, uh, or very few of us seem to mind. um, And we're much more worried about governments using our information than the private sector. So we've sort of got the worst of both worlds in this country in some ways. Well,
2: we do. I mean, on the one hand, look at Apple, okay, which is fighting the United States, I think rightly so, and fighting the Justice Department, about whether or not they can force Apple to go into everybody's iPhones and basically come up with a technology to defeat the encryption. And yet, when they get to China, what does Apple do? It agrees, under the Chinese rules, to take off the market apps that, are uncomfortable for the Chinese, including the New York Times app, right?
0: Disgraceful.
2: Okay. Or they agree, because they have no choice but to operate in it, to store a lot of the cloud data in China because the regulation is you need to store it in China. Um, I don't have any particular problem with companies coming to the conclusion they have to live by domestic law. I mean, they're sort of caught. but. It strikes me that you can't sort of take one moral stance in the United States uh, because we're a liberal society and then sort of shrug and say, well, what can you do with China when you hit the Chinese market, which is now probably Apple's largest market?
1: Right. And I think that's the point. The point is – and, Corey, maybe you want to respond to this – but the point is that we tend to believe in the United States that the progress of the information revolution – Will drive because information is, after all, information. Open societies, when in fact the progress of the information revolution may actually enable societies to be more closed, more restrictive, more uh, state engaged in the private lives of people, um, and and if not exactly bringing to life big brother, something that maybe even more extreme than big brother and and we're seeing this in places like china where everybody is on the internet everybody is in apps everybody is using this and they all know that everything is open to the government and they're saying fine you know this is part of the this is part of the deal what do you think Corey? Uh,
0: i i think you are exactly right david and that we are allowing American companies to hold uh, their government to a higher standard than they hold all sorts of other places. And, you know, on the one hand, uh, the long suffering nature of indignity of American government being uh, had rocks thrown at it by people who would never want their passports to be Chinese rather than American, um, and who want all of their in corporations to be in the United States where the rule of law will protect them and they can sue their government with impunity as Apple does. Um, right? Like it's incredibly tiresome to have the sanctimoniousness of Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook explaining that their government's evil while they are making deals with a government that actually is evil. Um, but still, uh, (laughs) I actually think that the way to get at this is is holding them to their own standards, right? Like publicize it, hold Tim Cook accountable when he goes to China, hold Mark Zuckerberg accountable when he goes to China and makes those deals, because it's actually not only them who are sanctimonious, it's their users who are also sanctimonious. Um, And so, you know, uh, mobilizing Apple phone users to ask Tim Cook at the next board meeting, what's going on with this? Why is it okay in China when it would never be okay here? I think it's the right way to fight it.
1: You know, we have a kind of creeping understanding of all of this. And in the past week, we actually had a Supreme Court decision where the Supreme Court, where the liberal justices actually sided with Justice Roberts, um, determined that I would that have phrased
3: the- that the other way around, but— <laughs> Right.
1: Exactly. And and you would have been right. But uh, d- d- uh, d- determined that Fourth Amendment protections uh, apply to um, uh, cell phone searches and that you need a subpoena for a cell phone search. And so we're sort of creeping into some awareness. We are. And it was an enormously
2: important decision. The b- big question is, does the Supreme Court use this wage that is now created to expand this right? Or not, and it was a fairly narrowly written decision. So it's entirely possible this is more, uh, more your your territory here, Rosa, than mine. It was an enormously important decision. If it turns out to be that wedge, so this one involved um, whether or not you needed a full search warrant in order to collect, as they wrote the opinion, more than six days. I don't know how they said set that it, of a of cell phone location material. And basically, this is the cell phone declaring where it is you are by triangulating among cell phone towers. And of course, you're walking around every day now with something that does that. And it was the beginning of an awareness by the court that the least important part of your cell phone was the phone, right? I mean, we use our cell phones all the time but rarely for actually for phone calls, right? And that everything else creates this digital dust that follows you around. And just because you agree to give that to Google or to AT&T or to Verizon, which needs it to communicate with you, does that mean you're giving it to the US government? Now think of where this could go going forward. You have an easy pass in your car. Does the government need to go get a warrant to figure out every place you went through the highway? Or can they just Grab that because you've agreed to give it to the state of New Jersey or wherever.
1: This this you're what he's talking, talking about to. is that there is an underlying principle here of a third party That's right. license. That if you give something to a third party, that means the government could get it if it wanted.
2: It, and right? in previous Supreme Court decisions, there had been sort of an agreement that if you did give that, you were giving up your rights. And this was the first one that sort of peeled that back. And it could be turn out to be enormously important to the question that we were just discussing before about whether or not if you send an encrypted message where clearly you intended that to be a private message, does that mean that Apple has necessarily can be compelled to unencrypt it for you, even if they say that they don't own the code?
1: Well, I mean, let me turn to you, Rosa, because this is a Supreme Court decision and it's Relevant. And I, I have two thoughts, two parts of the question, which is one, what do you think of the significance of it? And two, it raises another question, which is a broader one that I wanted to go to both David and, and to Corey about, which is we are entering a territory here which... I'm not sure all lawyers are actually trained to be competent in. And and we, I think we this is true. More broadly, you don't think broadly. that the Supreme
3: Court justices are cyber experts? Well, I wouldn't
1: dream of saying that. But <laughs> Ruth
3: Bader Ginsburg is a mean hacker.
1: She actually does hack yeah. in the basement. It's Luckily, well known. She's a white hat hacker. You know, and she's there in her hoodie. She's <laughs> she's in her it's hoodie why they call late at night. The notorious R B G. Yeah, exactly. Um, in in any event, uh, just talk about either element of that.
3: Wait, wait, what was the second element? I got confused the, the, by imagining with okay, one Gensberg in her hoodie. Yeah,
1: well, the first one is first how significant, yes. and the second one is What does it mean if lawyers and the legal community are? Oh yes, yes, yes. Okay.
3: uh, Well, so so first question. Yeah, it's it's an extremely significant case. Uh, It was a bit of a a surprise, I think, to uh, people who follow this closely. Uh, You know, who in many senses had kind of given up on the Supreme Court to protect Fourth Amendment rights in this domain. So so I think it really it does potentially at least breathe new life into the Fourth Amendment, which is quite exciting. And that said, it was a narrow decision. It was. Okay. The president
1: then went out and stomped on the Fourth Amendment a Precisely. couple of days later. Oh, okay,
2: are you going to, like... Are you gonna
1: have judges, <laughs> court,
3: yeah, court. Right, Why inside. are we <laughs> bothering we'll, with who this needs it? We'll yeah, it just it. slow stuff yeah. down. I <laughs> mean, as as you said at the beginning, David, it was, it was Justice Roberts plus the four liberal justices on the court creating a narrow 5-4 majority. Uh, how sustainable is that coalition as we get other cases that implicate Uh, a slightly broader range of issues really hard to know Um, on the 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 problem of lawyers in general um, not maybe being experts on this it's an enormous problem I mean it's it's a a problem of law always is laws always playing catch up, right? Technologies in any domain are always evolving faster than the law can possibly evolve, because the legislative process is slow, the judicial process is slow. So there's there's always kind of a, a gap between where the law is and where technology is in, in any domain. On this one, I think the gap is, is even wider. You know, that the generational gaps are enormous. Um, uh, I think the Supreme Court has been very very slow to understand you know why is why do intellectual property issues have a different different valence in the cyber world than they have uh, in the physical world you know why why should we care about these things why does this who cares if the government gets your metadata why is it important um, so so i I think that i mean so I teach at a law school obviously and and interestingly i I think that law schools like georgetown are beginning to do much, much more to respond to this. We now have a colleague of mine, for instance, teaches a course on coding for lawyers, uh, which has become very popular. Um, is, is,
1: is a technology course required at the law school?
3: It is not yet required, although it's a conversation that we've been having precisely for this reason, that, that this kind of stuff is going to become much, much more central. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, I, well, this is a whole other story. I think, I think, what's required in legal education has changed remarkably little in the last 100 years um but i think that we're beginning to make some steps in that direction
1: sorry Sorry, I you know I have we the, the the fiction that this is all live as you're listening to it is undermined somewhat undermined by the fact, the fact
3: that David is is playing poker uh, on his yeah his by whatever he's
1: doing. But I just saw a tweet sort of fly by that says Russell Crowe will play Roger Ailes in Showtime's limited series about Fox News, and I'm thinking, a What did Roger Ailes to deserve do to deserve this upgrade? <laughs> what did Russell Crowe do to deserve so this, this downgrade? I mean, it is horrible, but I guess Russell Crowe's going to get to eat well for the next few months. I guess the really
2: interesting question maybe this could become a new way to give away those books that I'm signing, yeah. you know, would be who would play David Rothkopf when the Deep State Radio movie is made? <gasps> How would that be for a competition? No, what about
1: the perfect weapon movie, you know? It's already and,
2: been made. Steven Seagal was in a movie
1: called The Perfect Weapon. And he is the guy I would have picked. Yes. Yeah, and see, he would it's... sit there and he'd go, I'm David Sanger and I'm the, the perfect, perfect weapon <laughs> <laughs>
2: Of all, out on book tour, I, I've been so disappointed because nobody has confused me yet for Steven Seagal. Yeah, well, that's because you're not
1: wearing a okay, giant no black robe. Like, um, Okay, Corey, so th- we're getting sort of towards the end of this, but I I, I want to follow up on this broader point. We've been talking about cyber. We've been talking about next generation technologies. We're talking about how it affects the law. We're talking about how it affects, you know, uh, uh, businesses and and a whole host of other relationships. And you made the Pony Express reference, right? We're in the early days of all of this. Um, But the number of people in the government, in any part of the government, who are actually competent to discuss these issues, and we're just talking about cyber, right? We talk about AI, big data, artificial, I mean, uh, uh, blockchain, uh, biotech, um, uh, 3D manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, is so infinitesimal that it's like we have the wrong people in the government for this era, and there's no sign that it's going to change, is it? I mean, this is a real national security risk, I would argue.
0: Uh, yes, that's certainly true. Uh, but that's not just true on technology. That's true on all sorts of stuff, right? That the key <laughs> the people in the government don't know the anything. American, <laughs> the key to making the American government effective isn't ensuring that the very best people are in the government. Although that would be a beautiful world of unicorns and glitter, if possible. Um, But making sure the people who are in government reach out to the people who are experts on it elsewhere. So on cyber, as on bio, the the government probably isn't going to have those experts because they're probably going to be more excited by the problems in a research realm or in a development realm or starting their own company than they are going to be. Um, in government, but but that just means we need to actually have public-private partnerships. We actually need to have to care what folks who aren't the most knowledgeable are. And here, um, I by no means want to excuse the belligerent ignorance of the Trump administration across the board. But I think, I as know,
1: Rosa would hop in here to say the socio- sociopathic belligerent ignorance <laughs> of the Trump <laughs> going,
0: I, yeah. as usual, I seed <laughs> Rosa the argument, um, and what a fine representative of her you are David thank you um i I think that they they so I remember when President Obama held his cyber summit out at Stanford and he got up and gave a ringing stentorian sermon about how all you tech people need to let the government build back doors because we know what we're doing. And and the glitterati of Silicon Valley were aghast. They were like, none of you people actually even understand this problem. Your safety actually lies in us encrypting stuff. Um, And... So that would be one useful place to start, not to expect that the best tech experts are going to go into government, although please, some of you deep state radio nerds do go into government and make our government good at this. But also, we need to actually allow our policies to be informed and shaped, not just by what the president thinks is right, good Lord, especially not in our current incarnation, But by the people who know it best, who aren't, as a general rule, going to be in government.
2: A quick point on why Corey is exactly right, which is when you bore a hole in the Internet to let in the FBI, you bored a hole that lets in the Russians and the Chinese.
1: Uh, Well, exactly. Or anybody else. I mean, we talk about them, but smaller countries could get through that all as well. David, we're just wrapping up here on this two-episode salute to David Sanger um, this will never
2: happen again. I should really enjoy it while it goes on. No, no. I'm, we're waiting for the – we'll do the we're same – We're having a parade in
0: Aspen, David. Oh, okay. The, the marching
2: bands are lining up right is, now. Is that the, the little yellow ducky derby? Is that what you had in mind, you know, where they float the little yellow plastic ducks down the river?
0: I'm <laughs> wearing a Team, team Sanger t-shirt at the moment.
1: Wow. I didn't even know there were <laughs> t shirts like that. We cut them for
2: women, unlike yeah. oh, the Beach that, oh, Day Radio. Wow. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> wow, <laughs>
3: Corey, Corey has a lot of t shirts. Yeah. She has an extensive wardrobe, and she often changes multiple times Mo- during each podcast.
1: So, so I'm going to ask you one last question. Then I'm going to ask Rose and Corey one last question. Theirs will be about general information. But I want to ask you before you go on your book you've spent all your time writing about cyber, um, you've written you know a couple of of good books on it this is a you know a definitive book on it how has it changed your behavior
2: it hasn't much which is really scary i mean i do the basic things that you do to go protect yourself but it's persuaded me that if a state is coming after you there's not a whole lot you can do about it I and mean, you can protect yourself against the vandals and the criminals and the deep state radio nerds maybe but not against a state sponsor that really wants to come at your stuff. While I was reporting on the book in Beijing, the Chinese completely fried my computer.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, of
0: course they did. Yeah. <laughs> David, will
3: you, will you give your fried computer away as a, as a piece of swag to in one it, of our it, listeners? It, I think it—
1: I think, it, I think <laughs> He's it, already given it away to the Chinese government. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, think it, <laughs> I think it went back
2: to the New York Times technology team, <laughs> oh. which looked at it in disgust and then asked me why I was using such an old computer <laughs> anyway, to begin with. Anyway, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but deep state radio nerds, um, when somebody gives you a a thumb drive or you fear your computer has been compromised, take it to a tech expert. A lot of them can help you. You will help build their knowledge for managing the problems David Sanger uh, rightly identifies in his brilliant book.
2: Or crush it under the right rear tire of your, of your uh, car. <laughs> Uh, that's actually, that would be a good piece of future swag, a deep state radio, corrupted USB drive. Yeah. <laughs> you, and, you and I both have a friend who once had
1: a computer that got fried, who, who wanted to bring it to the repair place, went out, put it in the driveway, got in his car, and backed over his computer <laughs> by <accident. laughs> Look after that. Look at all the money he saved on repair. And if he's listening, he will know exactly <laughs> like who, who we're talking is. about. <laughs> David's going to go. We're going to take two more minutes here for for Corey and Rosa because – thank you, David. And everybody will um, buy your book. It's a requirement. But um, – Let me go to Corey first and then to Rosa. I don't think the episode would really be complete and the week would really be complete without some comment on what's going on that's extraordinary in the U.S. government. We made a laughing reference to the president of the United States saying, um, let's get rid of judges and courts while dealing with this immigration thing. Uh, It's, you know, it's an unnecessary impediment uh, with regard to our laws. And, you know, There there was some degree of outrage, but we're also numb that it was a limited degree of outrage. And I just you guys have such a a wonderful uh, reservoir of righteous indignation. I just thought I'd turn to you each for a minute or so to get your take on what's happened in the past week on this front.
0: So three things really discouraged me in the last week. Uh, The first was the shocking behavior of child separation from parents at the border. The magnitude with which it's going on, the um, the efforts of the administration to race bait this issue for political gain, the corrosive effect it has on our body politic. Um, and And so that was one that was that was deeply disheartening to me. I'm shocked to see my country capable of that. And the only thing that keeps me from despair is the tough-minded journalism and civic activism that revealed it um, and challenged it and forced at least a, a recantation on the part of the administration. But that needs to be followed up by lawsuits, by law, by political action. Uh, The second thing that was extraordinary for me this week was George Will, lifelong conservative, uh, making a full-throated case to vote for Democrats because Republicans in Congress have proven themselves uh, incapable of principled action in defense of the law and in defense of uh, conservative principles. And and I was I was pretty far down that path myself when I saw Maxine Waters uh, latest indignation. I try to remind myself, as Peggy Noonan wrote in The Wall Street Journal, that Maxine Waters is a famous idiot. And so it's unfair to judge low IQ. Everyone. In fact, I
3: believe the president says
0: <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't very low mean, IQ. I didn't mean to make common cause with the president on this. <laughs> I meant to say she's a reckless political force, and long has been. Um, and uh, and so I was as strengthened to be reminded she is by no means representative, and I hope President Trump proves unrepresentative of my political party because we really need to get a lot of work done in this country on which all of us actually do agree and move forward. And the third discouragement for me this week was to see President Trump's approval rating with Republicans, because Maxine Waters may not be representative of Democrats, but it sure looks like Republicans are happy with the job the president's doing. So so I'm with George Will at the moment,
1: um well, that's a that's a big deal Rosa Last word outrages of the past week what stuck with you
3: oh i mean there's always there's so much it's it's always hard to choose but no i i I think that President Trump's continued lack of interest slash enmity for slash lack of understanding of the rule of law you know is the the big picture story here um you know, the – yes, every country has a right to, to protect its borders. Every country has a right to exercise some control over who comes in, uh, and we do. But we have a system already in place. Uh, we are required under both U.S. and international law to – have a fair process for asylum seekers uh, under the UN Convention on Refugees. And it's true. There are many people who come to this country not because they're fleeing persecution, but simply because they think they would have a better life here. And we have to treat them humanely. We don't have to let them all in, but we still have to treat them humanely and fairly. Uh, When it comes to asylum seekers, when it comes to people who are fleeing persecution in their home country, we have a very specific set of obligations under both international and U.S. law, Uh, and you can't just send people back without any process. The very minimal obligation is to have enough process to determine if they have a a credible fear of persecution that might entitle them to longer term asylum. And it, it is, you know, the, the, the history of turning away uh, refugees and people fleeing persecution is, is, is a, uh, a sad one and a shameful one for this country and for other countries. But I think we've just reached a new low with our president just saying, send them all back, they can't come in, no process, no judges, no courts, get rid of them.
1: The, the the Republican majority is encouraging the President of the United States to behave this way.
3: I don't think he requires their encouragement to behave this way. He does it all by himself. But but when he sees the polls
0: yeah.
1: increase, he goes, "Yeah, yeah, this is this is working yeah. for me." Yeah. And so you know, but there's this- and they
0: say they're using it explicitly for that purpose.
1: Right. And but, you know, I think at this point, you know, the the degree of complicity of the average Republican voter in the reprehensible behavior of the president of the United States needs to be called out. They are not off the hook. It's not just this one guy. They've bought into it. They own it. They're encouraging it. They're going to make it worse before it gets better. Um, and they're as reprehensible as he is.
3: I, I do think it's worth... Um... Saying there's been some interesting stuff written about this recently uh, that the core base of support for Trump seems to have nothing to do with policy and everything to do with personality and specifically there have been some interesting studies of sort of authoritarian personality and uh, how that translates into voting behavior because that that that's the only thing that sort of explains the seeming puzzle of well who are these people who you know voted for Barack Obama. Uh, in 2008 and even in 2012, and now are voting for Donald Trump. You know, what's up with that? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, You know, it doesn't make any sense when you have people voting for policies that seem to be counter to their economic interests, et cetera. Um, But that Trump's appeal doesn't really seem to have anything much to do with the specifics of policy on any given issue. It's just a, it's a set, set of signals he's sending out about, I am a strong man. I'm not going to take any crap from anybody. You're tired of taking crap from people. I'm going to put the bad guys in prison or send them away, you know, and you can count on me to stand up for you. You know, that, that it's a set of, sort of themes that, that strike that authoritarian chord rather than anything specific about trade policy. Policy, or even in some sense, about the, the the finer details of immigration policy that people are responding to, and that is is you know it's a, now we have to use this term all the time. Trump probably thinks that this word was invented for him that that trumps everything else.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that's true. And you know, and I think Corey of uh, what you just said about George Will about George Will about. Some of our other friends, Max Boot or Nicole Wallace or Steve Schmidt or some of these other people, you guys are not weather vanes. You're not snowflakes. You guys endured criticism and, and missteps by your own party for a long time. For you to say what you just said, I, I, I don't imagine is easy for you, and I, and, I, and I think it's a bigger deal than some people might realize. So it
0: actually is really easy. And that should be the measure of just how far beyond the pale the president has gone, how shocking the behavior of his supporters towards our fellow Americans and towards our neighbors and friends is, um, and how, how supine. Republicans in Congress who are supposed to believe in the same principles that bind us together as a political party have proven themselves in the last 18 months.
1: Um yeah, we've gone from the Ripon convention to the Supine convention. Um, uh well, uh, it's it's these are rough times. Uh I am very glad to be going through them with you guys who provide insight and emotional support. Uh, And with all of you Deep State Radio nerds who are out there, now remember, if you come up with a good reason why we should send you a free copy of David Sanger's book and you tweet it at us with the hashtag Deep State Radio, you could well get a free autographed copy of David Sanger's book, The Perfect Weapon. Um, And, you know, if it's a really, really good, Reason maybe we'll send you one of Rose's books or Corey's, you know, we'll send the other. (laughs) So, just
0: to be clear, is the disclaimer about friends and family not being uh, eligible for this? Does that apply? It never applies. We
1: have no rules in the deep deep state.
3: This is and like I the Trump administration, Corey. There are no rules.
1: Yeah, we use we use Trump administration ethical guidelines as any other government agency. Oh my would. God, no!
3: Okay. Yeah,
0: I won't apply for
1: the
3: book. And, no. and and we are all Nigerian royalty, and and our listeners should feel free to send checks made out in our names to to Deep State Radio, uh, third sub basement Ministry of Snark.
1: Yeah, just send those straight in to us, and uh, you know. <laughs> Well, I'm sure the money will be put to good use in any event. Uh, so there's an option out there for you. Uh, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Deep State Radio Nerds. Thank you, David Sanger in recent absentia. Thank you, Ian, uh, and all of your friends in North Korean public radio. Um, and <laughs> and we, will we will now play the North
3: your, Korean national anthem. Right.
1: Everybody stand and we will play the North Korean national <laughs> anthem. Thank you very much. All right we yeah.